Section 33 of The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 1B. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government by Jefferson Davis, Volume 1B, Appendix H, Part 1. Speech on the State of the Country by Mr. Davis of Mississippi in the Senate of the United States, January 10, 1861. A motion to print the special message of the President of the United States of January 9th being under consideration. Mr. Davis. Mr. President, when I took the floor yesterday, I intended to engage somewhat in the argument which has heretofore prevailed in the Senate upon the great questions of constitutional right, which have divided the country from the beginning of the government. I intended to adduce some evidences, which I thought were conclusive, in favor of the opinions which I entertain. But events, with a current hurrying on as it progresses, have borne me past the point where it would be useful for me to argue, by the citing of authorities, the question of rights. Today, therefore, it is my purpose to deal with events. Abstract argument has become among the things that are past. We have to deal now with facts. And in order that we may meet those facts and apply them to our present condition, it is well to inquire what is the state of the country. The Constitution provides that the President shall, from time to time, communicate information on the state of the Union. The message which is now under consideration gives us very little, indeed, beyond that which the world, less indeed than reading men generally, knew before it was communicated. What, Senators, today is the condition of the country? From every corner of it comes the wailing cry of patriotism, pleading for the preservation of the great inheritance we derived from our fathers. Is there a senator who does not daily receive letters appealing to him to use even the small power which one man here possesses to save the rich inheritance our fathers gave us? Tears are trickling down the stern faces of men who have bled for the flag of their country, and are willing now to die for it but patriotism stands powerless before the plea that the party about to come into power laid down a platform, and that, come what will, though ruin stare us in the face, consistency must be adhered to, even though the government be lost. In this state of the case, then, we turn and ask, what is the character of the administration? What is the executive department doing? What assurance have we there for the safety of the country? but we come back from that inquiry with a mournful conviction that feeble hands now hold the reins of state, that drivelers are taken in as counsellors, not provided by the Constitution, that vacillation is the law, and the policy of this great government is changed with every changing rumour of the day. Nay, more, it is changing with every new phase of causeless fear. In this state of the case, after complications have been introduced into the question, after we were brought to the verge of war, after we were hourly expecting by telegraph to learn that the conflict had commenced, after nothing had been done to ensure the peace of the land, we are told in this last hour that the question is thrown at the door of Congress, and here rests the responsibility. Had the garrison at Charleston, representing the claim of the government to hold the property in a fort there, been called away thirty days, nay, ten days ago, peace would have spread its pinions over this land, and calm negotiation would have been the order of the day. Why was it not recalled? No reason yet has been offered, save that the government is bound to preserve its property, 
and yet look from north to south from east to west wherever we have constructed forts to defend states against a foreign foe and everywhere you find them without a garrison except at a few points where troops are kept for special purposes not to coerce or to threaten a state but stationed in seacoast fortifications there merely for the purposes of discipline and instruction as artillerists you find all the other forts in the hands of fort keepers and ordnance sergeants and before a moral and patriotic people standing safely there as the property of the country i asked in this senate weeks ago what causes the peril that is now imminent at fort moultrie is it the weakness of the garrison and then i answered no it is its presence not its weakness had an ordnance sergeant there represented the federal government had there been no troops no physical power to protect it i would have pledged my life upon the issue that no question ever would have been made as to its seizure now not only there but elsewhere we find movements of troops further to complicate this question and probably to precipitate us upon the issue of civil war and worse than all this government reposing on the consent of the governed this government strong in the affections of the people this government i describe it as our fathers made it is now furtively sending troops to occupy positions lest the mob should seize them when before in the history of our land was it that a mob could resist the sound public opinion of the country when before was it that an unarmed magistrate had not the power by crying i command the peace to quell a mob in any portion of the land yet now we find under cover of night troops detached from one position to occupy another fort washington standing in its lonely grandeur and overlooking the home of the father of his country near by the place where the ashes of washington repose built there to prevent a foreign foe from coming up the potomac with armed ships to take the capital fort washington is garrisoned by marines sent secretly away from the navy yard at washington and fort mchenry memorable in our history as a place where under bombardment the star-spangled banner floated through the darkness of night the point which was consecrated by our national song fort mchenry too has been garrisoned by a detachment of marines sent from this place in an extra train and sent under cover of the night so that even the mob should not know it senators the responsibility is thrown at the door of congress let us take it it is our duty in this last hour to seize the pillars of our government and uphold them though we be crushed in the fall then what is our policy are we to drift into war are we to stand idly by and allow war to be precipitated upon the country allow an officer of the army to make war allow an unconfirmed head of a department to make war allow a general of the army to make war allow a president to make war no sir our fathers gave to congress the power to declare war and even to congress they gave no power to make war upon a state of the union it could not have been given except as a power to dissolve the union when then we see as is evident to the whole country that we are drifting into a war between the united states and an individual state does it become the senate to sit listlessly by and discuss abstract questions and read patchwork from the opinions of men now mingled with the dust are we not bound to meet events as they come before us manfully and patriotically to struggle with the difficulties which now oppress the country in the message yesterday 
we were even told that the district of columbia was in danger in danger of what from whom comes the danger is there a man here who dreads that the deliberations of this body are to be interrupted by an armed force is there one who would not prefer to fall with dignity at his station the representative of a great and peaceful government rather than to be protected by armed bands and yet the rumor is and rumors seem now to be so authentic that we credit them rather than other means of information that companies of artillery are to be quartered in the city to preserve peace where the laws have heretofore been supreme and that this district is to become a camp by calling out every able-bodied man within its limits to bear arms under the militia law are we invaded is there an insurrection are there two senators here who would not be willing to go forth as a file and put down any resistance which showed itself in this district against the government of the united states is the reproach meant against these my friends from the south who advocate southern rights and state rights if so it is a base slander we claim our rights under the constitution we claim our rights reserved to the states and we seek by no brute force to gain any advantage which the law and the constitution do not give us we have never appealed to mobs we have never asked for the army and the navy to protect us on the soil of mississippi not the foot of a federal soldier has been impressed since eighteen nineteen when flying from the yellow fever they sought refuge within the limits of our state and on the soil of mississippi there breathes not a man who asks for any other protection than that which our constitution gives us that which our strong arms afford and the brave hearts of our people will ensure in every contingency senators we are rapidly drifting into a position in which this is to become a government of the army and navy in which the authority of the united states is to be maintained not by law not by constitutional agreement between the states but by physical force and will you stand still and see this policy consummated will you fold your arms the degenerate descendants of those men who proclaimed the eternal principle that government rests on the consent of the governed and that every people have a right to change modify or abolish a government when it ceases to answer the ends for which it was established and permit this government imperceptibly to slide from the moorings where it was originally anchored and become a military despotism it was well said by the senator from new york mr seward whom i do not now see in his seat well said in a speech wherein i found but little to commend that this union could not be maintained by force and that a union of force was a despotism it was a great truth come from what quarter it may that was not the government instituted by our fathers and against it so long as i live with heart and hand i will rebel this brings me to a passage in the message which says quote, i certainly had no right to make aggressive war upon any state and i am perfectly satisfied that the constitution has wisely withheld that power even from congress End quote. very good quote, but the right and the duty to use military force defensively against those who resist the federal officers in the exercise of their legal functions and against those who assail the power of the federal government are clear and undeniable End quote. is it so where does he get it our fathers were so jealous of a standing army that they scarcely would permit the organization and maintenance of any army 
where does he get the clear and undeniable power to use the force of the united states in the manner he there proposes to execute a process troops may be summoned in a posse comitatus and here in the history of our government it is not to be forgotten that in the earlier and as it is frequently said the better days of the republic and painfully we feel that they were better indeed a president of the united states did not recur to the army he went to the people of the united states vaguely and confusedly indeed did the senator from tennessee mr johnson bring forward the case of the great man washington as one in which he had used a means which he argued was equivalent to the coercion of a state for he said that washington used the military power against a portion of a people of the state and why might he not as well have used it against the whole state let me tell that senator that the case of general washington has no such application as he supposes it was a case of insurrection in the state of pennsylvania and the very message from which he read communicated the fact that governor mifflin thought it was necessary to call the militia of the adjoining states to aid him president washington cooperated with governor mifflin he called the militia of adjoining states to cooperate with those of pennsylvania he used the militia not as a standing army it was by the consent of the governor it was by his advice it was not the invasion of the state it was not the coercion of the state but it was aiding the state to put down insurrection and in the very manner provided for in the constitution itself but i ask again what power has a president to use the army and navy except to execute process are we to have drumhead courts substituted for those which the constitution and laws provide are we to have sergeants sent over the land instead of civil magistrates not so thought the elder adams and here in passing i will pay him a tribute he deserves as the one to whom more than any other man among the early founders of this government credit is due for the military principles which prevail in its organization associated with mr jefferson originally in preparing the rules and articles of war mr adams reverted through the long pages of history back to the empire of rome and drew from that foundation the very rules and articles of war which govern in our country to-day and drew them thence because he said they had brought two nations to the pinnacle of glory referring to the romans and the britons whose military law was borrowed from them mr adams however when an insurrection occurred in the same state of pennsylvania not only relied upon the militia but his orders through secretary mchenry required that the militia of the vicinage should be employed and though he did order troops from philadelphia he required the militia of the northern counties to be employed as long as they were able to execute the laws and the orders given to colonel mcpherson and in new jersey were that federal troops should not go across the jersey line except in the last resort i say then when we trace our history to its early foundation under the first two presidents of the united states we find that this idea of using the army and the navy to execute the laws at the discretion of the president was one not even entertained still less acted upon in any case then senators we are brought to consider passing events a little garrison in the harbor of charleston now occupies a post which i am sorry to say it gained by the perfidious breach of an understanding between the parties concerned and here that i may do justice to one who had not the power on this floor at least to right himself who has no friend here to represent him 
let me say that remark does not apply to major anderson for i hold that though his orders were not so designed as i am assured they did empower him to go from one post to another and to take his choice of the posts in the harbor of charleston but in so doing he committed an act of hostility when he dismantled fort moultrie when he burned the carriages and spiked the guns bearing upon fort sumter he put carolina in the attitude of an enemy of the united states and yet he has not shown that there was any just cause for apprehension vague rumors had reached him and causeless fear seems now to be the impelling motive of every public act vague rumors of an intention to take fort moultrie but sir a soldier should be confronted by an overpowering force before he spikes his guns and burns his carriages a soldier should be confronted by a public enemy before he destroys the property of the united states lest it should fall into the hands of such an enemy was that fort built to make war upon carolina was an armament put into it for such a purpose or was it built for the protection of charleston harbor and was it armed to make that protection effective if so what right had any soldier to destroy that armament lest it should fall into the hands of carolina sometime since i presented to the senate resolutions which embodied my views upon this subject drawing from the constitution itself the data on which i based those resolutions i then invoked the attention of the senate in that form to the question as to whether garrisons should be kept within a state against the consent of that state clear was i then as i am now in my conclusion no garrison should be kept within a state during a time of peace if the state believes the presence of that garrison to be either offensive or dangerous our army is maintained for common defense our forts are built out of the common treasury to which every state contributes and they are perverted from the purpose for which they were erected whenever they are garrisoned with a view to threaten to intimidate or to control a state in any respect yet we are told this is no purpose to coerce a state we are told that the power does not exist to coerce a state but the senator from tennessee mr johnson says it is only a power to coerce individuals and the senator from ohio mr wade seems to look upon this latter power as a very harmless power in the hands of the president though the results of such coercion might be to destroy the state what is a state is it land and houses is it taxable property is it the organization of the local government or is it all these combined with the people who possess them destroy the people and yet not make war upon the state to state the proposition is to answer it by reason of its very absurdity it is like making desolation and calling it peace there being as it is admitted on every hand no power to coerce a state i ask what is the use of a garrison within a state where it needs no defense the answer from every candid mind must be there is none the answer from every patriotic breast must be peace requires under all such circumstances that the garrison should be withdrawn let the senate to-day as the responsibility is thrown at our door pass those resolutions or others which better express the idea contained in them and you have taken one long step toward peace one long stride toward the preservation of the government of our fathers the president's message of december however has all the characteristics of a diplomatic paper for diplomacy is said to abhor certainty as nature abhors a vacuum 
and it was not within the power of man to reach any fixed conclusion from that message. When the country was agitated, when opinions were being formed, when we were drifting beyond the power ever to return, this was not what we had a right to expect from the chief magistrate. One policy or the other he ought to have taken. If believing this to be a government of force, if believing it to be a consolidated mass, and not a confederation of states, he should have said, quote, No state has a right to secede. Every state is subordinate to the federal government, and the federal government must empower me with physical means to reduce to subjugation the state asserting such a right. End quote. If not, if a state rights man and a democrat, as for many years it has been my pride to acknowledge our venerable chief magistrate to be, then another line of policy should have been taken. The Constitution gave no power to the federal government to coerce a state. The Constitution gave an army for the purposes of common defense and to preserve domestic tranquility. But the Constitution never contemplated using that army against a state. A state exercising the sovereign function of secession is beyond the reach of the federal government, unless we woo her with the voice of fraternity and bring her back to the enticements of affection one policy or the other should have been taken and it is not for me to say which though my opinion is well known but one policy or the other should have been pursued he should have brought his opinion to one conclusion or another and to-day our country would have been safer than it is what is the message before us does it benefit the case is there a solution offered here we are informed in it of propositions made by commissioners from south carolina we are not informed even as to how they terminated. No countervailing proposition is presented. No suggestion is made. We are left drifting loosely without chart or compass. There is in our recent history, however, an event which might have suggested a policy to be pursued. When foreigners having no citizenship within the United States declared war against it and made war upon it. When the inhabitants of a territory, disgraced by institutions offensive to the laws of every state of the Union, held this attitude of rebellion when the executive there had power to use troops he first sent commissioners of peace to win them back to their duty when south carolina a sovereign state resumes the grants she had delegated when south carolina stands in an attitude which threatens within a short period to involve the country in a civil war unless the policy of the government be changed no suggestion is made to us that this government might send commissioners to her no suggestion is made to us that better information should be sought. There is no policy of peace, but we are told the Army and Navy are in the hands of the President of the United States, to be used against those who assail the power of the federal government. Then, my friends, are we to allow events to drift onward to this fatal consummation? Are we to do nothing to restore peace? Shall we not, in addition to the proposition I have already made, to withdraw the force which complicates the question, send commissioners there in order that we may learn what this community desire what this community will do and put the two governments upon friendly relations i will not weary the senate by going over the argument of coercion my friend from ohio mr pugh i may say has exhausted the subject i thank him because it came appropriately from one not identified by his position with south carolina it came more effectively from him than it would have done from me had I, as I have not, a power to present it as forcibly as he has done. Sirs, let me say, 
among the painful reflections which have crowded upon me by day and by night none have weighed more heavily upon my heart than the reflection that our separation severs the ties which have so long bound us to our northern friends of whom we are glad to recognize the senator as a type now let us return a moment to consider what would have been the state of the case if the garrison at charleston had been withdrawn the fort would have stood there not dismantled but unoccupied it would have stood there in the hands of an ordnance sergeant commissioners would have come to treat of all questions with the federal government of these forts as well as others they would have remained there to answer the ends for which they were constructed the ends of defense if south carolina was an independent state then she might hold to us such a relation as rhode island held after the dissolution of the confederation and before the formation of the union when rhode island appealed to the sympathies existing between the states connected in the struggles of the revolution and asked that a commercial war should not be waged upon her these forts would have stood there then to cover the harbor of a friendly state and if the feeling which once existed among the people of the states had subsisted still and that fort had been attacked brave men from every section would have rushed to the rescue and there imperiled their lives in the defense of a state identified with their early history and still associated in their breasts with affectionate memories the first act of this kind would have been one appealing to every generous motive of those people again to reconsider the question of how we could live together and through that bloody ordeal to have brought us into the position in which our fathers left us there need have been no collision as there could have been no question of property which that state was not ready to meet if it was a question of dollars and cents they came here to adjust it if it was a question of covering an interior state their interests were identical in whatever way the question could have been presented the consequence would have been to relieve the government of the charge of maintaining the fort and to throw it upon the state which had resolved to be independent thus we see that no evil could have resulted we have yet to learn what evil the opposite policy may bring telegraphic intelligence by the man who occupied the seat on the right of me in the old chamber was never relied on he was the wisest statesman i ever knew a man whose prophetic vision foretold all the trials through which we are now passing whose clear intellect elaborating everything borrowing nothing from anybody seemed to dive into the future and to unveil those things which are hidden to other eyes need i say i mean calhoun no other man than he would have answered this description i say then not relying upon telegraphic dispatches we still have information enough to notify us that we are on the verge of civil war that civil war is in the hands of men irresponsible as it seems to us their acts unknown to us their discretion not covered by any existing law or usage and we now have the responsibility thrown upon us which justifies us in demanding information to meet an emergency in which the country is involved is there any point of pride which prevents us from withdrawing that garrison i have heard it said by a gallant gentleman to whom i make no special reference that the great objection was an unwillingness to lower the flag to lower the flags under what circumstances does any man's courage impel him to stand boldly forth to take the life of his brethren does any man insist upon going upon the open field with deadly weapons to fight his brother on a question of courage there is no point of pride these are your brethren and they have shed as much glory upon that flag 
as any equal number of men in the Union. They are the men, and that is the locality, where the first Union flag was unfurled, and where was fought a gallant battle before our independence was declared. Not the flag with thirteen stripes and thirty-three stars, but a flag with a cross of St. George, and the long stripes running through it. When the gallant Moultrie took the British Fort Johnson and carried it, for the first time, I believe, did the Union flag fly in the air. And that was in October, 1775, when he took the position and threw up a temporary battery with palmetto logs and sand upon the site called Fort Moultrie, that fort was assailed by the British fleet, and bombarded until the old logs, clinging with stern tenacity, were filled with balls. But the flag still floated there, and, though many bled, the garrison conquered. Those old logs are gone. The eroding current is even taking away the site where Fort Moultrie stood. The gallant men who held it now mingle with the earth, but their memories live in the hearts of a brave people, and their sons yet live, and they, like their fathers, are ready to bleed and to die for the cause in which their fathers triumphed. Glorious are the memories clinging around that old fort, which now, for the first time, has been abandoned. Abandoned not even in the presence of a foe, but under the imaginings that a foe might come. And guns spiked, and carriages burned, where the band of Moultrie bled, and, with an insufficient armament, repelled the common foe of all the colonies. Her ancient history compares proudly with the present. Can there, then, be a point of pride? upon so sacred a soil as this, where the blood of the fathers cries to heaven against civil war. Can there be a point of pride against laying upon that sacred soil today the flag for which our fathers died? My pride, senators, is different. My pride is that the flag shall not set between contending brothers, and that, when it shall no longer be the common flag of the country, it shall be folded up and laid away, like a vesture no longer used, that it shall be kept as a sacred memento of the past, to which each of us can make a pilgrimage, and remember the glorious days in which we were born. In the answer of the commissioners which I caused to be read yesterday, I observed that they refer to Fort Sumter as remaining a memento of Carolina faith. It is an instance of the accuracy of the opinion which I have expressed. It stood without a garrison. It commanded the harbor and the fort was known to have the armament in it capable of defense. Did the Carolinians attack it? Did they propose to seize it? It stood there safe as public property, and there it might have stood to the end of the negotiations without a question, if a garrison had not been sent into it. It was the faith on which they relied that the federal government would take no position of hostility to them, that constituted its safety, and by which they lost the advantage they would have had in seizing it when unoccupied. I think that something is due to faith as well as fraternity, and I think one of the increasing and accumulative obligations upon us to withdraw the garrison from that fort is from the manner in which it was taken, taken, as we heard by the reading of a paper yesterday, while Carolina remained under the assurance that the status would not be violated. While I was under that assurance, and half a dozen other senators, now within the sound of my voice, felt secure under the same pledge, that nothing would be done until negotiations had terminated, unless it was to withdraw the garrison. Then we, the federal government, broke the faith. We committed the first act of hostility, 
and from this first act of hostility arose all those acts to which reference is made in the message as unprovoked aggressions the seizing of forts elsewhere why were they seized self-preservation is the first law of nature and when they no longer had confidence that this federal government would not seize the forts constructed for their defense and use them for their destruction they only obeyed the dictates of self-preservation when they seized the forts to prevent the enemy from taking possession of them as a means of coercion for they then were compelled to believe this federal government had become an enemy now what is the remedy to assure them that you do not intend to use physical force against them is your first remedy to assure them that you intend to consider calmly all the propositions which they make and to recognize the rights which the union was established to secure that you intend to settle with them upon a basis in accordance with the declaration of independence and the constitution of the united states when you do that peace will prevail over the land and force become a thing that no man will consider necessary i am here confronted with a question which i will not argue the position which i have taken necessarily brings me to its consideration without arguing it i will merely state it is it the right of a state to withdraw from the union the president says it is not a constitutional right the senator from ohio mr wade and his ally the senator from tennessee mr johnson argued it as no right at all well let us see what is meant by a constitutional right is it meant to be a right derived from the constitution a grant made in the constitution if that is what is meant of course we all see at once that we do not derive it in that way is it intended that it is not a constitutional right because it is not granted in the constitution that shows indeed but a poor appreciation of the nature of our government all that is not granted in the constitution belongs to the states and nothing but what is granted in the constitution belongs to the federal government and keeping this distinction in view it requires but little argument to see the conclusion at which we necessarily arrive did the states surrender their sovereignty to the federal government did the states agree that they never could withdraw from the federal union i know it has been argued here that the confederation said the articles of confederation were to be a perpetual bond of union and that the constitution was made to form a more perfect union that is to say a government beyond perpetuity or one day or two or three days after doomsday but that has no foundation in the constitution itself it has no basis in the nature of our government the constitution was a compact between independent states it was not a national government and hence mr madison answered with such effectiveness to patrick henry in the convention of virginia which ratified the constitution denying his proposition that it was to form a nation and stating to him the conclusive fact that quote, we sit here as a convention of the state to ratify or reject that constitution and how then can you say that it forms a nation and is adopted by the mass of the people End quote it was not adopted by the mass of the people as we all know historically it was adopted by each state each state voluntarily ratifying it entered the union and that union was formed whenever nine states should enter it and in abundance of caution it was stated in the resolutions of ratification of three of the states that they still possessed the power to withdraw the grants which they had delegated 
whenever they should be used to their injury or oppression i know it is said that this meant the people of all the states but that is such an absurdity that i suppose it hardly necessary to answer it for to speak of an elective government rendering itself injurious and oppressive to the whole body of the people by whom it is elected is such an absurdity that no man can believe it and to suppose that a state convention speaking for a state and having no authority to speak for anybody else would say that it was declaring what the people of the other states would do would be an assumption altogether derogatory to the sound sense and well-known sentiments of the men who formed the constitution and ratified it but in abundance of caution not only was this done but the tenth amendment of the constitution declared that all which had not been delegated was reserved to the states or to the people now i ask where among the delegated grants to the federal government do you find any power to coerce a state where among the provisions of the constitution do you find any prohibition on the part of a state to withdraw and if you find neither one nor the other must not this power be in that great depository the reserved rights of the states how was it ever taken out of that source of all power to be given to the federal government it was not delegated to the federal government it was not prohibited to the states it necessarily remains then among the reserved powers of the states this question has been so forcibly argued by the senator from louisiana mr benjamin that i think it unnecessary to pursue it three times a proposition was made to give power to coerce the states in the convention and as often refused opposed as a proposition to make war on a state and refused on the ground that the federal government could not make war upon a state the constitution was to form a government for such states as should unite it had no application beyond those who should voluntarily adopt it among the delegated powers there is none which interferes with the exercise of the right of secession by a state as a right of sovereignty it remained to the states under the confederation and if it did not you arraign the faith of the men who framed the constitution to which you appeal for they provided that nine states should secede from thirteen eleven did secede from the thirteen and put themselves in the very position which by a great abuse of language is to-day called treason against the two states of north carolina and rhode island they still claiming to adhere to the perpetual articles of confederation these eleven states absolving themselves from the obligations which arose under them end of appendix h part one